Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Myra Kalman on the line. Her new book is My Favorite Things. Hi, Myra. So glad you could join us. Very glad to be here. So tell us about this this book, My Favorite Things, and, and how the concept came to you. My Favorite Things is a companion catalog to a show that I was invited to curate for the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. They've been closed for three or four years, and they're reopening December 12th. So this book grew out of my year-long exploration of their archive, of their collection, and I created a story from their collection, and it inspired a lot of, uh, a lot of memories and thoughts about what objects are in our lives. And, and the objects uh, that you cover range from, say, medieval Egyptian tapestry to Abraham Lincoln's pocket watch and, and a funeral pall. T- tell us what made you select these objects. I mean, uh, obviously these are a few among many. Well, as I say in the book, the only criteria that you can have for choosing anything from a lover to, well, maybe not, from a lever to an object to a chair, is to make, it makes you gasp with delight. There has to be something that, ha- that goes through you that's completely about instinct and joy and really falling in love. So I didn't have to know anything about the objects, and I went through thousands and thousands of them, and tens of thousands digitally and also uh, in, their, um, in their warehouses. Really just saying which object shot, a ha- shot an arrow through my heart. And so tell us about this exhibit at the Cooper Hewitt Museum, and how, have you, had you done this curating before? I've done a little bit of, I've never done anything on this scale, right. and it is only, the, the, I say only, but it's really, it takes a long time, but it's a show, it's an exhibit that's housed in one room of the mansion, that was the Carnegie Mansion, and mm-hmm. it, it was in the music room, so it's a very ornate room with a lot of gold gilding, and it's just a beautiful Baroque room. So I, uh, I, I've done some uh, curations of my own work for museums, and I've had installations, but nothing like this, where you're really looking at the scope of the history and humanity and how objects talk to each other through time. So it was, it was really the first time, and it was a magnificent experience. So you say the exhibit's opening December 12th, but the book is out now. So um, I, I'm curious as to... Uh, how the companion catalog works without the thing that it's the companion to? The mysteries of museum opening schedules. We won't go into that. But the, <laughs> and book launch schedules, too, I'm sure. Yeah, no, they're always, you know, the, the, the calendars, uh, the calendars are, 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 you know, a mystery. But at any rate, the book hopefully stands on its own because it's not only an exploration of the objects that are in the show, but things that are beloved to me, both in my family and my history, and things that I have collections of or just encounter, you know, which is, could be a photograph of somebody dancing or uh, somebody napping under a tree to a broken chair on the street. So tell us a little bit more about the structure of the book. At first, I, when I was trying to figure out how to, how to describe it for the show, I was going to call it an illustrated essay collection, and I thought that wasn't quite right. But they, talk about the, the synergy of artwork and writing. So I do both the paintings and the writing for most of most of the books that I'm involved with. And this 
you know, there's there's a really the boundaries of what catalogs are. It's it's wonderful now because the boundaries of everything are shifting. So you don't have to be uh, formal or be strict about what something is. So this is this is a catalog of the objects in the in the exhibit, but it's also an exploration and uh, you know somewhat of a memoir about uh, my life and things that I love, as I said. And so I get a, the opportunity to paint things that I love and to write about things that I you know, care about, and then um, somehow it's formed into a book, which is a holy object. <laughs> and well, in this book, you seem to recreate the museum, museum experience for the readers, and what, do you, what did you find valuable or, or of interest as you were about the museum, museum, excuse me, museum experience and, and translating that into the book or conveying that in the book? Going to museum for me, going to museum is a very romantic experience. It's um, sometimes it's erotic because you see some beautiful nude statues, and you you know you wish you could go off to a romantic dinner with somebody. But the <laughs> the sense that you're you're wandering through any museum, any good museum in the world, and maybe even some bad ones, that what you're looking for is truth in your life. What you're looking for is a sense of there's meaning in what's going on. There's beauty in what's going on. So any museum experience is a really critical one, even if you look at one painting. It's not as if you have to be voracious and and have a checklist of what you've seen. But to allow yourself to be in a museum, it imbues you with some kind of wisdom and, and warmth that it's hard to get in other places. Reading books gives you the same thing. Mm Mm-hmm. But the museum experience is is so wonderful because you walk through a space, and walking through a space is just irreplaceable. And you've been able to personalize that in in my uh, my favorite things. It's almost like your own walking tour of the exhibit. It's a walking tour of the exhibit of my life. Uh-huh. Uh, Toscanini's pants that I wanted at auction are in the book. <laughs> a ladder that I love. Shoes that I bought in a thrift store in England. The shoes that slow down time because they're too big for me. <laughs> you know, all of the things, well, not all of the things, but a few of the things that are that I just think are wonderful were able to be included in the show. So I'm really grateful to the people at the Cooper Hewitt for allowing me to put in my stuff and as well the vitrines most of the vitrines in the show are my furniture a, a french camp bed from world war one a chaise a, a pretty ugly yellow velvet chaise oh, I, you know, I, I call it the fainting chaise so the, the, my piano is in the room because there's going to be music played in the room and that's to accompany the the lincoln uh the, the lincoln experience uh, so there's a lot of storytelling that goes on when you talk about the objects in a design museum. I, I was going to say, it sounds like every object sort of comes pre-equipped with its with its own story. I love the idea of the, the shoes that, that slow down time. Is that what you said? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, that, that to somebody else, they're just shoes. Um, but you look at them and you, you see the story. Do the stories just sort of jump into your head? Do they develop over time? I think it depends on the object, but... If you have, if you're really looking at the things that you have and you really care about the things that you have, they're going to have a dialogue with you. Sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's sad, you know, so there's never, which is the same as the collections in a museum. People have collected them because they really have value on some, for some reason. That gets translated when you go through, through an archive. People have chosen things because they really care about them. So it's always an emotional experience, as I say. It's never antiseptic. It's never intellectual, just strictly intellectual. 
Right, that makes a lot of sense. So, and and it's a good reminder also that what you're curating has already been partially curated, in that you're going through a collection that someone else already assembled of objects that called to them at the Cooper Hewitt. Right, and they weren't stuffy and dry; they were full of passion, mm, right. and it's felt in a museum. It's it's a it's that's why I say it's a very it's a very passionate experience to be in a museum if you allow yourself to kind of enter that space. And you don't worry about learning too much. You know, there are going to be two, um, there are going to be two benches mm-hmm. covered with pink velvet in the show so that you don't have to look at anything. You can just sit there and stare, which is one of my favorite occupations. So why shouldn't you be able to do that? And I imagine yeah. curating a show is like writing a book or, or assembling something that at some point you have to, uh, uh, assembling something of your favorite things, in order for it to fit a narrative, you have to cut out certain things that you thought might have been precious and fantastic, but just don't fit within the theme. What was your process like that with both the book and curating the show? It's really interesting because all of the work that I do, I write children's books, and it's very right. important for me to edit down to the least possible amount of words that I want to convey to you as, as quickly as possible so that, you know, I don't get bored or you don't get bored. The, the sense of editing is that you go through a process where you start with, I started with 500 objects, mm. and we kept editing and editing, and I worked with wonderful curators who I could turn to and say, what do you think? And they said, well, you know, it's okay, but it's not incredible. And mm. then I'd have to um, <laughs> ponder and search my soul and weep and wail to wonder whether I should cut something. And we've been cutting, we've been installing now, we cut to the very last day things that I really am on the floor weeping about. How could we part with that little book with the ribbon tying it? And then uh, somehow we do and life goes on. So the same editing process goes in writing a book and in editing a book. And it's really, it's a wonderful thing to, it's the same thing as process and editing in life. You know, I'm looking at, I have a large library of books and now I'm sitting here thinking, I have to get rid of some of these. Okay, so I'm going to do that. And you just want to have a clarity of what you have so that there isn't lots of stuff around you that you don't really love. I uh, I just edited an anthology this past spring, and it was a very similar process. We got a few stories where I I sort of wept to turn them down, uh, but we, we just couldn't take them all. And uh, there, there were others that we had to cut down. So it, it's uh, it, yeah. that that sort of process is always a little heart wrenching. But it also helps to clarify your own priorities in some ways. That when when you're going through those bookshelves, you might see things that were very meaningful to you 20 years ago and aren't so much anymore. Exactly, and it's interesting to see how that process changes. And also, what you can see in life, what you can do without. Which is, as you get older, you can see you can do you can do with a lot less. Mm-hmm. And that's, I was saying at the museum, that you know, you have way too much stuff. Why do you have so much? Because <laughs> you know, most museums do, because that's their job, to acquire. But at a certain point, we have the, you know, the luxury, the great luxury of being able to edit and to have light, you know, that clarity and, and space and light, which is what, something that I wanted in the show. So you seem to derive a lot of inspiration from history in in general. Um, Tell us a little bit, since you mentioned your picture books, tell us about your book, Fireboat. Fireboat was such an extraordinary experience because I really didn't want to do that book. One of my good friends, Florent Morellet, who owned the restaurant Florent, 
Mm-hmm. You guys ever went there? Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. One of the owners of Fireboat. And when, after 9-11, he contacted me and said, I have an extraordinary story for you. And I put him off and put him off, but Florent is not somebody to be put off. And he persisted in saying, this is really an important story to tell and to tell for children. Then I was able to, to see that it really could be a love letter to New York. Who You know, I'm completely in love with New York. I can't imagine living anywhere else on the planet Earth for any more than a few, you know, a few days. So this was, and, and it was a love letter to New York and, of course, into the human spirit that tragedy will befall you, there's no doubt. And the only question is, how do you, how do you survive and, and, uh, and triumph over tragedy? So it was a really, you know, heartbreaking experience to be working on it and to do the paintings so quickly after the event. Mm. But... I'm very happy that Florent forced me into it, and it was a, a really a really good way for children to look at the notion of unexpected disaster and what happens to people when that happens. I mean, usually you, you mm-hmm. get the best of people when that happens. And, and the fireboat we're talking about is the John J. Harvey. And in the book, you, you, you talk about the history of the fireboat. And you mention about its, I guess it's beginning, or, or you start with the, uh, the erection of the uh, Empire uh, uh, State Building. And you start right. with that. Uh, the, and then the fireboat was built, this particular fireboat that was uh, built in 1932 in the heyday of fireboats, Mm-hmm. patrolling the mm. harbor and really vital to all of the history of New York. And I talk a little bit about what ha- was happening in 1932, including the invention of the Snickers bar, which is a big, big, um, important day in my family. For my family, because <laughs> we love the Snickers bar. Wait, what, so why was that? <laughs> it was a way to, to, to put it in history that all of these things were going on in New York. Mm-hmm. And then as the years went by, the, um, the boat was no longer useful and it was going to be sold for scrap. And then a bunch of people come together and buy it and resurrect it and say, this is a wonderful boat and it, and it doesn't have to be, you know, junk. And then 9-11 comes and they're able to contribute an extraordinary service to the city because all the firemen were, were broken or buried and the fire trucks could not get there. So this, mm-hmm. it really is a little engine that could and this fireboat was able to come down to the harbor and pump water for four days and nights allowing them to get control of the fires that were raging wow. uh, in the area. So the people were heroic, and the boat was heroic, uh, and it was a, a, you know, it was a, it was a great, great story for children and for adults. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Myra Kalman, author and illustrator of My Favorite Things. She's been telling us also about her uh, picture books. And I was wondering how you approach putting together a picture book. I mean, obviously not all of them is go- are going to be uh, as as emotionally taxing as Fireboat. But in, in general, what is your process like? Do you get the concept first? Do you do the art and then the story or the story and then the art? 
it's so wonderfully organic that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really fortunate. I've been doing picture books since 1986, and uh, the first one was with David Byrne doing stay up, doing stay up late for Little Creatures, doing the illustrations. The most recent one is also for the Cooper Hewitt. It's called Aha to Zigzag, and it's a children's alphabet book about the objects in the museum, and in a in a very funny, lighthearted way, how we relate to the objects around us from a button. Mm-hmm. to a pair of shoes, to a toilet, which we all use. Mm-hmm. So there is a very playful attitude towards, again, looking at things without this heavy kind of pedantic, you have to learn something here, otherwise you're going to be in trouble, right. and there's going to be a test. It's more about just the, the, the joy of exploring. And every book that I do, whether it's been somebody else that's initiated it or from my own idea... It comes really from my life and from the idea that so many things happen, digressions. You know, I like to be off point more than on point. To me, the digressions are the most delightful part of any book. And I'm able to tell you some kind of loosely held together narrative with all the episodic things that happen to people during the day and how the funny, unexpected things that happen. So, you know, the series of Max is a poet dog, you just wandering around the world from New York to Paris to L.A. to Bombay. And I travel a lot, so I always want to include traveling in my books. It's just a big mishmash of somebody's life. And your your book, My Favorite Things, which we just talked about, comes from the comes out of the uh, Cooper Hewitt uh, exhibit, is is really for uh, adults. Uh, I mean, and then the one that you had just mentioned. I'm sorry, remind me of the title. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Zigzag. For kids. Uh-huh to Zigzag is the alphabet book, and that's 31 objects from the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum uh, collection. Okay. And what is your process like for illustrating for adults versus for kids? And and I am going to want to, we are going to want to talk to you a little bit about your New Yorker illustrations as well, but yeah. the process for that, especially when it comes to museum, something that can be enjoyed, uh, and uh, um, the book at least can be enjoyed by both adults and kids. It's really fantastic to be able to have both audiences as an, as the people that I work for. And sometimes they overlap. Of course, the children's books, some adults like them, and then children and adults can talk to each other. Right. And what I try to be is the same person for all of them, and maybe there's a little bit more difficult vocabulary for the adults. But basically, I am the same person, and the paintings really are in of the same hand. You wouldn't think that somebody else did them. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to tell my story to a range of ages, but I want to be myself. So it's really, Ludwig Bellemans is a wonderful example, and he's somebody who's a great inspiration to me because he wrote and painted children's books, the Madeline series, of course, and for the, for the right. adults for the New Yorker, and he did travel books with his paintings. So it was a tremendously free way of living. You really can just adapt whatever part of your brain is working at that time to this kind of audience. And it's, it's just, it's really amazing. So um, speaking of your New Yorker work, uh, I was wondering how you approach collaborative art projects, like, uh, for example, the New Yorkistan cover that you did with Rick Myrowitz, which is a great favorite, I, I think, in, in our offices and yeah. probably all over New York. That was, and of course that was also, it it was interesting, that was the flip side of writing a children's book about 9-11, because this came organically from the two of us were going out to visit some friends, 
and we were driving through the Bronx and started to kid around, you know, and everybody was completely in a black and tragic and desperate mood, and suddenly, which the human spirit prevails, we were kidding around about the neighborhood that we were going through, and we said it was Bronxistan, because we were so overwhelmed with all of the tribal information that we were getting, I, I mean, I didn't know anything. And I think many people had never heard of so many of the groups of people that were involved mm-hmm. in in that. So we were able to kind of have fun and joke around. So I have to know somebody well to be able to be comfortable enough to collaborate. It's uh, lovely to do it, and it takes you out of your own head and makes something that some of the parts are better than the, the individual parts. So he and I are really great friends, and we're able to understand the language. And we had about at least four to five times more neighborhoods, and that was also a process of editing. When we sent it to the New Yorker, they said, oh, you've got to get a grip and edit. No, <laughs> so it was wonderful. It's wonderful to have the New Yorker to talk to about you know, publishing the work. And that's also an incredible uh, place that you can come up with ideas that are lit- literary, narrative, illustrative, and say, this is an idea depicted in a, in a painting. Are you interested? Um, speaking of the literary, you also illustrated an edition of The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. Um, what was that project like? I mean, so many people venerate that book, and I think it's uh, it's easy to forget that there's a lot of sort of sly humor in it. That book is hilarious, and Evie, of course, Strunk was funny, who knew, because uh, he was a dry professor of literature, but E.B. White is hilariously right, funny. Right. So every example that they chose, one was better than the next. I mean, I had a tremendously hard time deciding which examples to illustrate, and that also came from a summer of being at a yard sale in, in the, on the Cape, picking up the book and going, whoa, this book is amazing, I have to illustrate it. And it took a few years to to get the rights and all of that, but I had a completely clear picture of what I wanted to do, and it was so easy, because they just they just laid it all out. It's, it's really nutty and uh, very smart. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you've you've also designed clocks and, and fabric. What what are some of your your favorite? Uh, I, I don't want to say pick the one favorite because I know what a hard question that is. But since we're talking about your favorite things, what are some of your favorite things that you've made? The uh, the Emin Company watches are very beloved by me, and the ten one four watch I guess is probably the one that I love the most. With, which only has the numerals 10 and 1 and 4, and it's part of the Museum of Modern Art design collection. Mm-hmm. So I, th- this is a, a studio that my husband, my late husband, Tibor Kalman, ran, M & Company, and uh, he was also of the belief that you really didn't have to limit yourself to anything. You could just do everything that you were curious about doing, and curiosity was really the driver in all of that. So one day we decided to make watches, and so we did. Um, that, that's that's lovely. What a sentence! We decided to make watches, and so we did. I mean, I, I feel like maybe there was a little more to it than that. <laughs> well, there's some hard work that goes with that. But that's the sentence that you say to yourself. And um, I have to say that my, in terms of the idea, the ideas of that, that I'm going to um, plug my son, who has the smallest museum in the world, in an elevator shaft on Cortland Alley, and which carries on the tradition of. You just decide that you want to do something, and there's no there's no stopping you unless somebody stops you. 
in which case they've stopped you. But there's no reason not to try. Okay, and now I'm curious about this museum on Cortland Avenue. Tell us I'm happy. exactly. It's Cortland, it's Cortland Alley, Cortland and Alley. it's in Tribeca. It's okay. in Chinatown, basically. It's, his his um, aesthetic is, is kind of an extension of Tibor's and mine. He's very interested in cultural anthropology, so there are weird collections of things, from things that are found in the bottom of the sea to uh, p- objects that prisoners make to uh, a moss collection and uh, to a toothpaste collection. So the human endeavor of enterprise, the typography, the design, is something that's endlessly interesting. So it's a teeny little museum that's open on weekends, and it's called Museum. Wow, great. Okay, good. <laughs> so um, before we wrap up, I'm curious, what, what projects do you have on the horizon? It seems like you could do pretty much anything you wanted to from here. Where are yeah. you going? Oh, that's such a nice thing to hear. Um, I just came back from Japan, so I'm doing a piece about Japan for a magazine, and I'm embarking on a few. More books are coming up and some murals for... Um, various places and uh and i'm embarking on a dance choreography life oh t- in the vein of why not wow so uh I, you know I, I danced the part of the duck in um <laughs> peter and the wolf isaac mizrahi's production in last winter at the guggenheim museum and i wore tutu and flippers so clearly i was destined for some kind of greatness on the stage because <laughs> now i'm working with two choreographers who, who saw something in me that it's impossible to have seen but at any rate i'm entering into the kind of music three i mean and you know besides the fact that there's music that i've done with nico muley for elements of style and for this exhibit that's opening at the cooper hewitt about uh lincoln's you know there's music connected to lincoln's pocket watch which is a whole other conversation um, so there are a lot of projects going on and more traveling and and then surprises and then the phone will ring and I won't know what it is but it might be good well I'm, I, I, now I have to ask just like I did about your son's museum but what's it like designing for something that is fluid and moving rather than an object you can hold such as a book or a watch uh, the, the, start maybe first with the music but I'm particularly interested in the ballet what uh, uh, you're working with a choreographer where are you designing I, I, I imagine from set to costume to choreography uh, well you know I designed uh, sets and costumes for Mark Morris Ballet uh, a few times, so that is the, was the very first taste of what it's like to work on wow. a theater piece. The, the projects that are going on now, we're in the I don't know anything stage, which is perfectly fine to have and maybe critical, that we're just getting together and talking to see what it is that we're, we're interested in doing. One of the choreographers, Monica Bill Barnes, mm-hmm has a good idea of what it is that she wants to do. She wants to explore movement in a museum, which actually combines all of our interests mm. and kind of fluidity through rooms in a museum. Um, the other choreographer, John Higginbotham, wants to create a completely new ballet, and I have no idea what I'm going to be doing with him, and it may be that I'm just going to be sitting on a chair or not, or maybe I'll be nowhere near the stage, but it'll be a conversation of creating something. So I really, I truly don't know, um, which I hope will feel good for a few more weeks anyway. <laughs> and um, how, how does it work to, to have music that accompanies your, your book or the, uh, 
the the museum exhibit um does the music play as people walk through the exhibit is there a cd with your book how does how does that happen the music in the cooper hewitt exhibit is going to be linked to two different things one we were able to borrow lincoln's pocket watch from the smithsonian in washington it's a national Mm -hmm. treasure it's the first time it's left the museum and it was one of three watches that he owned. We're not sure which one he had with him the night he was shot. But we took the watch to a watch restorer, which was an amazing experience. A wonderful man, George Thomas, from Prague, on the outskirts of Baltimore. He spent the day cleaning the watch and was able to make it tick. And the ticking was recorded. Mm. The, ticking, the recorded ticking was given to Nico Muley, who's now going to create a song cycle based on Lincoln's, lyric, Lincoln's text and the ticking of the watch with singing and other musical instruments. That's going to be played in a continuous loop in the gallery, including you'll be able to hear just the ticking of the watch, which is so incredibly moving because it's what Abraham Lincoln heard and has never been heard since. And probably will never be heard again because the watch, he could only make the watch tick for, I don't know, it was 10 minutes. Mm. Very delicate. And so we will have the beautiful experience of hearing Abraham Lincoln's ticking watch and the glorious music that Nico Muley composes. He's also composing a song cycle for the room so that somebody may come in while you're there and sing a song about the spoon that's in the room and then leave, which is, I think that's great. I do too. And how long will this exhibit be going on for? It's going to be up through June. Fantastic. Well, Myra, I feel like we've gotten to spend the last half hour just swimming in art. What, what, a, what a treat. Thank you so much for sharing your world with us. Thanks to both of you very much. We've been talking with Myra Kalman. You can find her book, My Favorite Things, in stores right now. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews Director Luis Aramolino talks about the best books of 2014, so stay tuned.